Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In our last discussion, we were midway through discussing the Bail Act before we started considering how it comes together in either an application before a court in real life or the elements of a solid answer in a a bar exam problem. As always, I commend to you the resources that the Judicial College of Victoria have pulled together. Bail is no exception. So where it comes to reviewing the law, if you're completely new to it, or even if you are most familiar with it, have a look at the bail materials, including commentary on key cases that the Judicial College has mustered. And as always, I'll link to it in the show notes at the end of the episode. So in our last discussion, we talked about the test for the bail decision maker. And that was the point where, whilst I'd introduced the tests, I hadn't really explained to you or um, started the discussion about how they all sat together and pointed out some of the relevant case law. You might remember that there's a prima facie entitlement to bail under Section 4 unless another test applies. So if you confronted a bar exam question that related to bail, an initial question that you need to ask is which test applies. And if you don't get any information to the contrary, then there'd be a prima facie entitlement to bail. Section 3D of the Bail Act actually includes a flowchart that assists you to determine which test applies. And firstly, it might be useful to have a look at the offence with which your client's charged and figure out whether it might fit into either the exceptional circumstances category or the compelling reasons category. If your client, whether real or virtual, falls within one of those categories, then it's going to be a more difficult application than in other circumstances because it's the applicant that bears the onus of establishing to the court satisfaction either exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons exist that justify a grant of bail. So that's the first part of the test. In such a circumstance, the prima facie entitlement to bail has been rebutted because another test applies. Now, if one of those tests applies, or even in circumstances where neither of those tests apply, the last part of your early analysis is whether the prosecution in a particular case are suggesting separately to that that an unacceptable risk exists. Now, the unacceptable risk test therefore accompanies those two tests, or it might be the predominant test if neither of those tests um, is made out in the circumstances. And in such a case, the prosecution bears the burden of showing to to the court that there's an unacceptable risk posed by the applicant or by their circumstances, which I'll get into in a moment. So here we're talking about a number of different factual scenarios that trigger the operation of these tests. So the first scenario might be too easy for a bar exam problem that arises occasionally in real life where there's a prima facie entitlement to bail. That's step one. Step two is considering whether there's something about the offence with which the accused is charged, which takes it either into an exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons test. And as I may have mentioned, if it falls into both, the exceptional circumstances test will prevail. In such a case, as mentioned, the applicant bears the burden of showing either the existence of exceptional circumstances which justify the grant of bail 
or the compelling reasons which justify the grant of bail. But that may not be the end of the analysis because the prosecution may then separately suggest that the applicant represents an unacceptable risk. In such a case, they bear the burden of satisfying the court that there is an unacceptable risk. Or even if the accused does not fall into exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons, separately the prosecution can simply say that there's something about the circumstances that gives rise to that unacceptable risk. Now let's go through each of those tests and their triggers. So firstly, examples where the exceptional circumstances test will apply. Here please see section 4AA of the Bail Act. Firstly, if the accused is being charged with an offence that appears in Schedule 1 to the Bail Act. Some of those have been included in slide 3, such as murder, aggravated home invasion, aggravated carjacking, trafficking and so forth. And I've mentioned this in the last discussion. Or where a Schedule 2 offence is said to have been committed, where a person has a terrorism record or there's a risk of a terrorism offence, or the offence is alleged to have been committed while the accused is on bail or summons or awaiting trial for a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 offence, or during a sentence parole order or community corrections order for a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 offence. So it's either a Schedule 1 offence or a Schedule 2 offence in certain circumstances, such as the operation of another bail order or during the sentence or community corrections order for a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 offence. In such a circumstance and only in such a circumstance, the client will fall within that category. And when it comes to clarifying what the test is that the learned judge or decision maker needs to apply, see, for instance, Reed Glury Hyde 2018 VSC 393. And some of the extracts from that case appear on slide four. It's an elusive concept. But what you're looking for is something that takes it into an exceptional circumstances case which justify a grant of bail. Often it's in combination, so it doesn't need to be a single exceptional circumstance. It might be the combination of the strength of the prosecution case, which you might contend is not strong, the applicant's personal circumstances that are unusual or restorative of faith that the person is not likely to re-offend, and an absence of other factors suggesting an unacceptable risk. Delay at the moment, and perhaps more so than in other times, is certainly very significant. So the fact that it is a long or indeterminate wait before the matter can be listed for trial is a matter that the court will have regard to when considering whether there are exceptional circumstances. See RECT 2018 VSC 559, which appears at slide 5. It's not, just as the name suggests, the court won't find exceptional circumstances in every case. It's a high hurdle for a bail applicant, but it's not intended to be an impossible standard. And RECT was a case in which the court discussed that combination of factors. So if the strength of the prosecution case is not as strong as in other cases, if there is undue delay uh, in bringing the matter to trial in combination with the applicant's personal circumstances, then the bail decision maker might be satisfied of that step. And... Of course, I've mentioned now a number of times that the accused bears the onus of demonstrating exceptional circumstances. Now, in the circumstances of a particular case, the prosecution may separately allege, as I've mentioned, that there's an unacceptable risk as the second step 
of their courts or their decision makers evaluation. It would be an unusual case, especially for examination purposes, if you were applying the exceptional circumstances test and then the prosecution didn't separately contend that there was also the existence of an unacceptable risk that, and we'll go into to this in a moment, but it could be a risk of re-offending, it could be of absconding, it could be that the applicant might contact witnesses and so forth. So query whether at the end of that first stage, the prosecution is still contending that there's an unacceptable risk and you may run into the situation where the decision maker finds there to be exceptional circumstances, such as, a prosecution case which is not overwhelming and a defence case which is plainly arguable, the risk of a long delay before the matter is brought on for jury trial in circumstances of the presumption of innocence and the right to liberty, only to find that, that the accused has something about their personal circumstances which is so criminogenic that the court will say I'm not comfortable with the quantification of risk even though I have found there to be exceptional circumstances. Now further and separately to that we move into the compelling reasons test. Now of its nature compelling reasons is intended the way that it sits in the Bail Act to be qualitatively a more straightforward test for the applicant to satisfy than exceptional reasons. If we have a look, for instance, at the sorts of offences that put the accused into a compelling reasons test, though they are deeply serious, as you'll see from the slide, many of them are not as inherently serious as in the Schedule 1 scenario. So 4AA subsection 3 of the Bail Act indicates that Schedule 2 offences alleged to have been committed will put the applicant into a compelling reasons category, such as an indictable offence alleged to have been committed whilst the accused is on bail or summons or awaiting trial for another indictable offence or during a CCO or parole order. Some of the homicides falling short of murder. So that would be manslaughter, child homicide, homicide by firearm intentionally causing serious injury and recklessly causing serious injury, but only in circumstances of gross violence. Some of the more serious sexual offences and so forth. So moving on to slide eight, if the compelling reasons test applies, just as with the exceptional circumstances test, the applicant will bear the onus of demonstrating compelling reasons. Just as with the exceptional circumstances test, the court must have regard to the surrounding circumstances of the case, which we've talked about in the last discussion. So some of which relate to the circumstances of alleged offending, some of which relate to the applicant's personal circumstances. And even if those compelling reasons are made out, the prosecution, of course, may then um, still allege that there's an unacceptable risk and which the prosecution bears the burden in relation to. So just as in relation to exceptional circumstances, you'd consider surrounding circumstances such as strength of the prosecution case, delay, and the personal circumstances of the applicant. Resay Land 2018 VSCA, VSC 361 considered compelling reasons and noted the point that I was referring to earlier, which is that in applying the terms of each provision of the Act, the Act requires the court or the decision maker to bear two sets of considerations 
in mind when evaluating surrounding circumstances and they're the safety of the community on the one hand and the presumption of innocence and the right to liberty on the other. It was Rees-Salan that gave rise to the proposition that the exceptional circumstances test was plainly intended to be more difficult to satisfy than the compelling reasons test. And of course, in taking into account surrounding circumstances, in considering whether a compelling reason or, or compelling reasons are established, you must consider all relevant circumstances, including the strength of the prosecution case, accused personal circumstances and criminal history. So that is the compelling reasons test. And once the court has considered and evaluated whether a compelling reason exists, and once again, you might think that delay will weigh heavily in that uh, calculus, especially at the moment where waits for jury trials may be longer than at other times by reason of COVID delays. Further and separately to that, as I've foreshadowed, you still have to face the unacceptable risk test. So each of these must be considered separately and sequentially. So finally, and this could follow from the exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons analysis, or it could simply apply even where the applicant doesn't fall into either exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons, if the unacceptable risk test applies, then the court must once again look to those surrounding circumstances and consider whether the prosecution is correct in its assertion and it bears that onus of demonstrating that there's an unacceptable risk. One point to note is that the court will build in consideration of whether that risk may be mitigated by suitable conditions of bail. So where the unacceptable risk test applies, the court or decision maker is not looking at the question in a complete vacuum. They're also factoring in the available conditions of bail in Victoria and considering whether that might mitigate the risk back to an acceptable extent. It's often said in bail applications that the court or conditions can never completely remove risk so where we talk about an acceptability of risk, it is the point at which the decision maker considers even with conditions that might be imposed in the circumstances of the applicant's case, that they still represent a risk that exceeds the decision maker's level of tolerance. Slide 11, what are the relevant risks? So I've, I've referred at, at such a large number of times to the unacceptable risk test without actually talking about what the relevant risks are. They're set out in 4E. The principal risks to which a bail decision maker must calculate, refer and evaluate, are risks that the accused would, if released on bail with conditions, 4E1A1, endanger the safety or welfare of any person or two, commit an offence while on bail, or three, interfere with a witness or otherwise obstruct the course of justice in any matter, or four, fail to surrender into custody in accordance with the conditions of bail. So it's not an unacceptable risk or an acceptable risk from up on high. The evaluation of risk is anchored back to those four specifics. So the first two relate to risk to others 
and committing criminal offences. So we need to start thinking about what possible conditions might be imposed that would alleviate those risks. In turn, and here I'm editorialising and we'll come back and link it all together, you need to look at what it is said is the applicant's criminogenic urges. So why is it that the accused is said to offend and be at risk of further offence? So could it be alcohol or drug addiction? Could it be their mental health, their psychological state? Could it be the fact that they're homeless or they don't have any money and they feel compelled to commit further offences in order to fund their lifestyle? So you think about the circumstances of the particular case and think about how it is said that the accused poses an ongoing risk of either endangering safety or welfare or committing an offence whilst on bail. The next category is the risk that the accused would interfere with a witness or otherwise obstruct the course of justice in any matter. So you have to look at the particular accused and consider whether the circumstances of the allegation or their behaviour give rise to some sense that there's going to be a usurpation of the usual course and they're going to try to contact prosecution witnesses or, for instance, the complainant even if there were a condition of bail that restricts that. And then the last main heading of risk is that they might fail to surrender into custody in accordance with the conditions of bail. So this is a risk of an altogether different sort. This is the risk that the accused may abscond for one reason or another. So there's a different set of conditions that might be able to be imposed that would help with the evaluation of that risk. So it could be that the accused is required to live at a static address. It could be that they are obliged to observe a curfew. They could be required to report to the local police station. And depending on the intensity of the risk that they may abscond, it might be every day or it might be um, three times a week or once a week. There, you might think about the other connections that the accused has with the community. So if, for instance, the applicant was an employed person or a person who is a loving family person with children who are at the local school, then, of course, the bail decision maker is um, given a different set of circumstances than a person who doesn't have those community ties. And the failing to surrender into custody is one of those conditions in which if if the applicant has money or friends or family with money, it might be appropriate to put up some form of surety, uh, which acts as a financial incentive for the person not to abscond. I've mentioned 4E2AB. It's the prosecution that bears the burden of satisfying the bail decision maker of the existence of the risk and further that it's an unacceptable risk, even having regards to available conditions of bail that might mitigate the risks. And the bail decision maker, like as with the exceptional circumstances and compelling reasons elements of a test, takes into account surrounding circumstances, including, as mentioned now a number of times, the availability of conditions of bail that might serve to mitigate risk to an acceptable degree, it might be said. I've included at slide 12 the conduct conditions that a bail decision maker might consider imposing on a grant of bail which, as mentioned, might serve to uh, help with the calculus of risk. 
5AAA2 indicates that a bail decision maker may impose conditions that are no more onerous that are than are required to reduce the risk back to a, an acceptable degree and the conditions must be reasonable having regard to the nature of the alleged offence and the circumstances of the accused. So another legislative indicium of parsimony. So just what is needed and nothing more. 5AAA4 provides some indications of what those conditions might be. So any or all of the following. And note, please, and relate these back to the discussion of the previous slide. It depends on what risks the particular applicant is said to pose. So some of these conditions will go to the risk of reoffending. Some of these conditions will go to the mitigating the risk of flight and so forth reporting to police station, residing at a particular address, a curfew, that the accused is not to contact specified persons or classes of persons, surrender of passport, geographic exclusion zones, attendance and participation in a bail support service. And there are a number of these, in particular KISP, that are available through the magistrate's court that might assist the accused with grappling with uh, particular social uh, conditions that they may experience, such as drug or alcohol issues or um, issues with a secure residence, and that might um, help to locate the accused back into an acceptable degree of risk. It could be exclusion from driving. It could be that the accused not consume alcohol or a drug of dependence whilst they're on their bail undertaking, and that the accused comply with any existing intervention orders. So there is a multitude of conditions that might be available to a court and might be available, for instance, to the applicant's counsel for suggestion that the submission that the accused represents an unacceptable risk is um, more is a test that the prosecution can't satisfy the court in relation to. I've noted at slide 13 the availability of a surety provision. It's a specified amount or deposit of money and it is separate to conduct conditions. Usually it is a, another person who acts as a surety and if the accused fails to comply with their undertaking of bail, the surety can be forfeited, which is going to carry a financial sting for the person acting as surety. And its purpose is effectively to oblige the surety to ensure that the accused is complying with the conduct conditions of bail, including the obligation to attend at court. So there are the principal provisions of the Bail Act. So we're now at the point where we're starting to draw all of the threads together in a really practical way and figuring out the elements that might need to be included in an answer if the question were to be asked in a past exam. Uh, sorry, in a present exam. Thinking of past exams, um, my observation from reading past papers is that a bail question arises more than half of the time and um, the form of the question is of the nature of that the client instructs that they wish to apply for bail. What are the matters that the decision maker needs to take into account? Is the accused likely to be granted bail? Exactly as you would expect. It's a bit like real life. So how to set up an answer and how to set up analysis? Well, it would be to start with an application for bail under Section 8 of the Bail Act, see slide 14. So as far as procedure is concerned, the bail decision maker can make such inquiries as considered desirable. So for those who practice in this area, you'll be well familiar with this. And for those that don't, 
I'll keep this discussion as simple as I possibly can. Ordinarily, evidence is called from a police informant or another police officer. That may include the adoption of a written statement, which is known as a remand summary, which sets out the circumstances of alleged offending. Um, it would explain to the court the relevant test that applies and it would foreshadow some of the risks if it is said by the prosecution that the accused does represent certain risks. On occasion, it might be that the uh, police informant has considered whether there are conditions of bail that would ameliorate these risks, and they're set out in the summary. Either way, you might think during cross-examination of the police informant that the types of um, topics that are often canvassed relate to strength of the prosecution case, relate to likely delay and submissions as to the length of time that the accused is likely to wait on remand before the final resolution of their charges. One of those relevant circumstances there might be to make a submission that time spent on remand before the matter is heard may well exceed the sentence in the event of a guilty finding. That is going to be a very compelling um, matter to point to. During cross-examination, the applicant's counsel will explore risk based around each of these uh, surrounding circumstances, the personal circumstances of the accused and available conditions of bail. The applicant's counsel may choose to call other witnesses. So that could be friends or family or other narrators as to personal circumstances, the availability of a secure residence, of a job, or they can be dealt with by way of submission. So Section 8 contemplates a rather more fluid hearing, for instance, than in a criminal trial or a matter of other um, formality. It might be that the accused wishes to call evidence from a medical or psychological counsellor, drug or alcohol counsellor, as to the availability of rehab programs. The bail decision maker ultimately can receive and take into account any evidence which they consider credible or trustworthy. So in a bail application, it is not necessarily the case that the court is bound by strict rules of hearsay and other rules of evidence. It is a, a much more inquiry-based hearing. So pulling all of these matters together and considering the practicalities of answering a question relating to bail in the bar exam, my suggestion is to start with the relevant test. So this will take some time during reading time to make sure that you have the information that you need to figure out whether your pretend client is charged with Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 offence and the legal significance of that. So is it an exceptional circumstances application or is it compelling reasons or is it neither? So that's point one. If it's one or the other of those two, note please that you should set out who bears that burden squarely on the applicant. You may wish to deal in a line or two with the relevant test. And you need to refer to the surrounding circumstances. As mentioned, some of those will involve reference to the circumstances of alleged offending, and some of them will involve reference to the personal circumstances. And then further and separately to that part of the evaluation of the relevant test, of course, you then turn to the unacceptable risk test. 
again, set out the structure. Note that the prosecution bears the onus of demonstrating that. And as you consider identifying which of the particular risks it might be thought were not acceptable, you interleaf conditions of bail that might be suitable to ameliorate the risks back to an acceptable extent. Once again, you need to have reference to the surrounding circumstances of the case. So this is all contained in slide 15. I've suggested that you draw conclusions as you go. So once you come to the end of the exceptional circumstances, compelling reasons test if it applies, come to a prima facie conclusion before you move to the unacceptable risk test. And the risk test is obviously going to require further integration of available conditions into your evaluation of risk. And then come to a conclusion. So um, you need to put yourself into the position of the shoes of the decision maker and consider the answers to those two main questions. So are there compelling reasons, for instance? And separately, what are the degrees of risk? So now we turn to the Jury Directions Act of 2015. And in this part of the discussion, we're not going to go through every provision of that act we're only going to focus on the examinable provisions you'll be pleased to hear even though it's a very functional act which if you move into criminal trials you'll end up referring to incredibly frequently so the first examinable tranche of provisions is part one and the reading guide indicates that sections one to four a are relevant and examinable in your bar exam so first, slide 17, the purposes of the Act. Look at those purposes. Reduce the complexity of jury directions in criminal trials. Simplify and clarify the issues that juries must be determining criminal trials. Simplify and clarify the duties of the trial judge and the duties of legal practitioners and so forth. So the purpose of this Act, fitting squarely at um, this stage of our discussion, which is still in criminal procedure, is it applies to criminal trials to require the legal practitioners to make careful forensic choices about which jury directions are sought at the end of a criminal trial from the trial judge and it then obliges the trial judge, unless there are good reasons for not doing so, to give those directions to the jury in a simplified form. Now, moving on to the second part, which is part two, general, you've been told that sections five to seven are the examinable provisions. Note, when you look at these provisions, some of them seem rhetorical, but in my reading of these provisions, they're acutely practical. So looking prior to 2015, and, and so looking at the last five years, for instance, we, we now find that the task of the trial judge, it's suggested by Parliament, is much simpler than it once was. And it's certainly much more abridged. So the trial judge is intended by Parliament to give jury directions suitable to the case and in a simplified and abridged form compared to the obligations under the common law. So this is reflected in section five of the Jury Directions Act. So the guiding principles of the Act were, are, that in recent decades, the common law of jury directions in criminal trials is becoming increasingly complex and that it was thought may make it more difficult for jurors to understand and apply jury directions. 
So looking at section five, it's noted and further to the introductory matters and preliminaries that it's the responsibility of the trial judge to determine the matters in issue in the trial, the directions that the trial judge should give to the jury and the contents of those directions. But they are informed, those responsibilities, by the duties of legal practitioners appearing in a criminal trial to provide assistance in that role. And continuing with section five, Parliament's intention is that jurors do not receive a full exegesis about the law. It's the intention of Parliament 5 subsection 4 that the trial judge in giving jury directions in a particular trial should, here I'm just reading from the provision 5 subsection 4, give directions on only so much of the law as the jury needs to know to determine the issues in trial avoid using technical legal language wherever possible and be as clear, brief, simple and comprehensible as possible. So this is the new order of criminal trials, although we've now set it for five years, so there's little that's new about it. When it comes to closing addresses and beyond, the Jury Directions Act dominates the discussion, dominates the procedure and the content and you'll see sections six and seven, which do not prescribe, indicate that there's no prescription as to precise form of words that need to be given. And if there are statements or suggestions by one counsel or another made that are prohibited by the Act, then the trial judge is obliged to make corrections. Okay, so the next group of accessible provisions is part three, and we're still in um, structural matters and figuring out the procedure that applies in every case. So part three of the Jury Directions Act is titled Request for Directions. And the purpose of part three um, under section nine is to assist the trial judge to discharge their duty to determine those matters, matters in issue at the trial, directions that they should give to the jury and the content of those directions. And the collateral responsibility, which is the duty of counsel. So to ensure that legal practitioners appearing in a criminal trial discharge those duties to assist the trial judge in the determination of their matters. The part applies to the specific directions given in the particular case. So if you have observed a criminal trial, you will see that general directions are given in every single case, usually at the start of the trial judge's charge to the jury at the end of the trial after the evidence is closed and after closing addresses. So this is where forensic choice does not apply to general directions, such as the jury's role, such as matters concerning the different types of evidence that were called and the jury's uh, general approach to how to evaluate witnesses. So those general directions apply irrespective of the Jury Directions Act. Otherwise, the jury would be left without a focus and instructions about how they should go about their task. Instead, we're talking about directions that need to be crafted in the circumstances of the particular case. So which evidentiary directions apply to the particular case? Obviously, there'll be a different set of directions in a murder case in which only circumstantial evidence has been called. 
vis-a-vis a sexual assault case in which direct evidence has been called and there's evidence of complaint, for instance. So in every criminal trial, there will be a different set of specific evidentiary directions that will need to be given. Section 11 of the Jury Directions Act operates so that at the point in time where evidence has concluded but closing addresses have not begun. So section 11 starts with the juncture in between evidence concluding and closing addresses beginning. So you may remember from our earlier discussion of criminal procedure, the flow of a trial is evidence followed by, well, this discussion followed by closing addresses followed by the learned trial judge's charge. So section 11 in practice is referred to as the Jury Directions Act conversation or the Jury Directions Act discussion. So before the closing address of the prosecution, I'm reading from section 11, the prosecution must inform the trial judge whether it considers that the following matters are open on the evidence and if so, whether it relies on them. The first is any alternative offences and the second is any alternative bases of complicity so accessorial liability, for instance, instead of principal liability. Then defence counsel must inform the trial judge whether they consider that the following matters are or are not in issue. The first is each element of the offence charged. So some may be an issue, some may not be an issue in the particular case. The second is any defence and the third and fourth overlap with prosecution, any alternative offences and any alternative bases of complicity. So that is the start of the Jury Directions Act conversation, section 11. And the last point is section 12. After the matters in issue have been identified in accordance with that section, then prosecution and defence counsel must each request that the trial judge give or not give to the jury particular directions in respect of A, the matters in issue, and B, the evidence in the trial relevant to the matters in issue. So this places that square obligation on prosecution counsel and defence counsel to identify those matters in issue and ask for specific evidentiary directions as a result. Under section 14 of the Jury Directions Act, The trial judge must give the jury a requested direction unless there are good reasons for not doing so, 14.1. So that's a pretty clear and overt position. If counsel has not requested a particular direction, it will not be given. And if they have requested a particular direction, it will generally be given unless there are good reasons for not doing so. And good reasons may arise, 14 subsection 2, where the trial judge evaluates the evidence in the trial, the manner in which the prosecution and accused have conducted their case and concludes in an unusual case because the trial judge is clearly intended to react to the requested direction. So it would be pretty unusual to depart, but it might be where the trial judge has observed the evidence, has observed the questions, the opening address and the questions that have been asked of each witness and considers that the matter has not been raised or relied on in the course of the trial. And accordingly, it's not a good juncture to raise a new issue for the jury's determination. The next relevant provision is section 15 of the Evidence Act, which indicates the trial judge must not give the jury a direction that has not been requested 
under section 12 subject to section 16. So section 15 is a pretty clear legislative indician that if a direction has not been requested, it's not going to be given unless section 16, the trial judge considers there are substantial and compelling reasons for doing so, even though it hasn't been requested. So you can see from the last three provisions, if a direction is requested, generally it must be given. If a direction has not been requested, generally it must not be given unless, and here we are, section 16, substantial and compelling reasons to give such a direction. If the trial judge considers that an issue has genuinely been joined, the direction has not been given, sorry, direction has not been requested, and the trial judge seeks to give such a direction under 16 subsection 2 before giving such a direction, the trial judge must inform prosecution and defence counsel that the trial judge is considering giving the direction and invite submissions from the prosecution and defence counsel about the direction and whether there are substantial and compelling reasons for giving the direction. So this might arise in real life where evidence has been led, for instance, of a lie told by the accused. So let me give you a scenario in which evidence has been led where the accused out of court told police, for instance, in their record of interview, a certain fact which has been disavowed at trial. It's been proven not to be true. Now, at the end of the trial, the trial judge might ask or must ask counsel in accordance with sections 11 and 12 to identify those matters in issue and uh, request any directions. So the jury has a lie before it and defence counsel may either request, and we'll go into this perhaps in the next discussion, I don't think we'll have time to cover it, but it's the very next conversation, defence counsel may suggest or not suggest an incriminating conduct direction. Indeed, it might be the prosecution that would rely on the lie for incriminating conduct, as we'll discuss. If the trial judge concludes that it doesn't amount to incriminating conduct, so that is it can't be used as an admission against the accused, there's a, a second part of the direction that may be given that tells the jury to confine its um, thinking process and its evaluation process to that lie in considering the credibility of the accused. So I'm, I'm foreshadowing a, a deep issue of um, evidence, which is that a lie may be told by the accused and, and proven to be a lie, may be used by a jury as incriminating conduct and therefore um, an admission, or if not, typically the jury is told that it must only use that the telling of that lie when it comes to evaluate the credibility of the accused and they can't use it for any other purpose. So let's assume prosecution counsel has not asked for an incriminating conduct direction and defence counsel hasn't asked for a credibility lie direction or misconduct a direction. The trial judge might be left unsatisfied because the jury is given no guidance at all as a result as to how to use the evidence of that lie. So the trial judge might be concerned that if they're not given guidance, for instance, to confine their evaluation to the accused credibility, they might indeed think of it as being evidence that they can use to determine the accused guilt. So that might be such a situation where under section 15, the trial judge might ask counsel 
and Section 16, look, you haven't asked for an incriminating conduct direction and I wouldn't give one. Defence counsel, you haven't asked for a credibility warning where uh, the trial judge invites the jury to confine its reasoning if they find the um, accused to have lied purely to using that lie and evaluating the accused credibility. And the trial judge might then say, the evidence has been admitted, must have been admitted for a purpose, but I'm not sure what that purpose is. Now, that might be such a direction where after that indication, the trial judge may give the jury a direction as to how it may be used. Now, in the next conversation, we need to go through a large number of provisions in part four, which are evidential directions. It's a relief that we've discussed evidence in such close detail because quite a few of these directions will relate back to our, our discussion of evidence. Each of the divisions, um, if you're an old common law fan, uh, typically relates back to an area of law in which the High Court had handed down a decision or a series of decisions that warned the jury as to how to use um, certain evidence and how not to misuse it. For noting, please, Part 5 of the Jury Directions Act and Part 6, so they relate to sexual offences and family violence, which are used in practice uh, very commonly and not for examination for the purpose of the bar exam. But if you move into trial practice or you're familiar with trial practice, you'll know just how closely you need to be aware of those parts. And the last provisions that are examinable, there are quite a few of them, arise in parts seven and eight, which are the general directions and the trial judges summing up. So we've still got quite a way to go with the Jury Directions Act. So in our next discussion, we're going to have a look at all of those specific evidentiary directions that might arise in a particular case. And now we know that under sections 11 and 12, there'll be a different cohort of directions that will be activated, both by the evidence led in a particular trial and also prosecution and defence counsel's forensic decisions, whether or not to ask for a particular direction. In most, if not all cases, as we'll discuss and conclude in the next discussion under part seven, the trial judge separately carries the obligation to give a tranche of general directions. So we can look forward to that. And then after that, we will finish with one to two discussions on the Sentencing Act before we start working through civil procedure. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.